Conversations with Leaders is a podcast focused on the intersection of business and technology. In this episode, we discuss the challenges and opportunities companies face as they shift their business to the cloud. Brought to you by AWS Executive Insights. Visit aws.amazon.com slash executive insights for more on these topics. So I think every conversation I have with executive leaders is what, what is the why of what you want to change? Certainly from my own journey as, as a customer of AWS, understanding the why of what you're trying to do is, is, is critical. Um, and the simpler it is, the better. Uh, I think one of the most common things I'm seeing, particularly in, in banking, which is where I spend most of my time, is they want two things. One, they want risk reduction and they want to go faster. They want the agility. So when it comes to transformation, they're the two things which are kind of leading the pack for me on the topics. And that's great because then you can work backwards from there. Like I think the worst mistake I've seen you know, is when people try to put technology out there for technology's sake. So you've got to work backwards from what the business is, is trying to achieve. Yeah, that's a key, that's a key point. The, the why being a business objective, not an IT objective, and then being able to align that across the organization is key. Yeah, and it's interesting when, uh, I even had it today with a customer when they were talking about the business yes. and IT. And I was like, well, there's not much business anymore without technology being part of it. So isn't it all just the business? Right. And what are you trying to achieve? And it's a bit like when people say, what's the technology strategy? I'm like, well, actually, what's your business strategy? Because that's actually what, what drives everything. So I think let's bring it back to actually what are you trying to achieve when you talk about transformation? It's also about like what's unique value that you bring to the customer. It has to be your why. Mm. Right? Often we see uh, companies kind of try to photocopy somebody else's transformation objective, mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't work. Uh, you really have to think hard about what value and what differentiates you for your customers uh, and double down on that um, and, and really sort of mine that into your transformation objective. But a lot of the times over the years, they've actually accumulated so much technical debt of things they don't need to do anymore. Right. And then they've built mechanisms around doing that stuff they actually don't need to do anymore. So they've actually forgotten about what their unique selling point is. They've forgotten what makes them them. And actually when you're moving and then talking about agility, they're bringing that baggage with them very often. You're like, actually, hold on. Do you, do you really need to do that still? Um, certainly when I was going on, on the journey, one of the biggest lessons I learned was, you know, stop optimizing something that shouldn't exist. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And I think when, when I talk about digital transformation, I think the word transformation is much more important than the word digital. But often these efforts are focused on digital. They're focused on technology. They, they think that if we buy something, well, that's one way to achieve the transformation. It's just an enabler. It's something that helps you go faster. And in my mind, digital mental model is really moving fast. Mm. That's what digital means. It's not a piece of technology. It's actually moving at a digital pace. And then objective around transformation are sort of your business objective that helps you achieve uh, digital transformation using technology. And, and to that point, the, that digital transformation should never stop. It's, it's always iterative. Uh, oftentimes with customers, they say, well, when are we going to be done with our digital transformation? And they sometimes equate digital transformation with their cloud migration. Mm -hmm. And the cloud is just a small part of digital transformation. Yes, you may get all of your assets into the cloud or you may not, but your digital transformation will continue forever and ever because you're always going to be improving your business and you're always going to be looking at what what can I remove from my operations that are not core to my business 
or that I don't have to directly invest in. And I can just focus on what is core to my business and what differentiates my organization from all the competitors that are out there. It's hard though. It's hard because just trying to release that technical baggage. And as humans, we so love to get comfortable. Like even though we know we need to be consciously uncomfortable and keep learning, we get comfortable. And that's where the hard bit is of, if I'm an executive, if I've built my organization out, my silo, and we, we do this thing, what, what, you know, what I'm seeing is, particularly when they move to business outcomes, where the value is actually typically done across silos at the bottom level anyway, is we see organizations suddenly turning on their side, which is actually how do we extract that value stream? How does that team become self-sufficient? And as, as we know, that's when cloud becomes the, the major enabler. Suddenly teams can be self-sufficient, but that's hard because you've got to let go. You know, you've got to let go of that old mental model, that old way of doing things. Uh, and actually, I think most of my conversations are helping you know, people change their operating model, less about the, the proven technology. It's about like, I think organizations are comfortable with step change because change is painful. So mm. we want, if you think about the J curve of traditional change, there's a as a state, which we think is not good and we want to go to a to be state. But we think about that change in one 18 months, 24 months project that you do once. Mm. It's painful. People spend long nights and weekends and budget over launch. Yeah. Uh, and then we want to go back to status quo, right? Business as usual. I'm done with this project and change so that I can go back to just business as usual. And in new world, there is really no target state, right? Yeah. Change is continuous. And I think it's about developing <clears throat> comfort in your organization about the continuous incremental change. Yeah, the never normal. Never normal. Or change is normal. Yeah. Yeah. So what are, what are some of the challenges that you see? I think the, there's, 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 a, there's a number of them. I think there's kind of like, certainly from a lot of the regulated organizations that are changing, I'm, I'm seeing four principal challenges and I'd be interested in your thoughts. One is I'm seeing, well, what's the executive alignment about that one thing? that we actually need to achieve. And very often, different leaders have got different goals that they want to achieve. So achieving that almost that one thing, that agility goal, is, is certainly one of the big things, the establishment of that common thread. It would be the first one. What it, Clark, what are, what's your thoughts? So along those same lines is the, the, the executive drive throughout the rest of the organization, right? So uh, that the transformation can't be run effectively by a um, subsidiary department. You need, you need that um, executive leadership to say, we are changing, change is gonna be constant. Our goal is X, Y, and Z. You know, Maybe it's the customer, maybe it's revenue, maybe it's getting product out the door, whatever the case may be, we need to do this better, yeah. right? And then that's, that's leading that change across the entire organization, whether it's HR, finance, accounting, IT, security, uh, to all be focused on that and be focused on that relentlessly. Yeah. And I think that's about sort of being fearless, especially in the C-suite, because change is uncomfortable for the, for the whole organization. Yeah. But often I think executive teams uh, are overthinking and overplanning the risk um, because of those long drawn out cycles of long projects and sort of historical baggage of uh, expensive failures. And that's where I think fundamentally cloud alters the equation because it reduces time to value, but it also reduces your blast radius and the risk. It does, but also what I'm seeing is when people say that they get they get stuck, and sometimes they they then procrastinate, 
very often I ask the question, I says, well, who's the arbitrator of this decision? Who has the final, like, if you're talking about a regulated entity lines of defense, who's the lead first line? And very often they're like, we don't know. And I'm like, well, that's a concern for you immediately because when you're changing your operating model because you want to go faster, who's the arbitrator then of what is a risk? What's a risk that should be mitigated? And what's not a risk? Because you're not actually articulating the either the guidelines or the guidance or what we're trying to achieve, particularly with security frameworks. And what is our risk tolerance? And, and what's our risk tolerance? Yeah. And, and particularly if you have a risk committee, then suddenly some of the nuances of actually cutting through this noise are like, whoa, wait a minute, we don't know who's actually making the call on this. I know from my own journey, one of the things I had to do was get out of my office every day, mm-hmm. go you know to some of the early teams that were experimenting, and when they were blocked, often through perceived risks, yeah. had to stand there and go, is this a real risk? Okay, yes it is. I, I'm well. either going to accept it or I'm going to mitigate or we're going to do something. And the, just the identification of the executive who's going to take that role, super important in that first category. So one of the challenge that uh, I hear from customers, some customers, is that they have consensus-driven culture. So they don't have the single-threaded leaders like we have at Amazon who's empowered to drive a meaningful change. And they expect their leaders to build consensus. Um, And that's the reality of many enterprises. In fact, I've worked in companies like that. Uh, What are some of the things that you've seen work in an environment like that? It's, it can be pretty challenging. I I think ultimately though, what I see in, um, there's a difference between all, there's a different paradigms here. There's three that I see. One is, what is the public sector paradigm? What is the commercial organization paradigm and what's the regulated sector paradigm? And I think different entities will have that. The consensus culture can overlay in all of them, but typically what I see in regulated institutions is there is nominated leaders because there has to be almost a single threaded leader, which helps. But there's still a consensus very often required on things like architecture. Like a lot of leaders are looking for consensus-driven architecture. The thing that I've really seen uh, and certainly at Amazon have seen and, uh, and have learned over the years is principles can dramatically help simplify or at least get a group towards a common mental model of how are they thinking right. something through. I think one of the things that I've seen work in my experience is uh, there is a leader, even if they are not assigned or agreed upon as a single-threaded leader, yeah, sort of like implicit, an in, enlightened leader, yeah. soul, uh, and they take it upon themselves to navigate that that consensus-driven culture. And the thing that actually helps is deeply understanding motivations of your peers Mm -hmm. and showing them the value in the areas that they care for, especially in the early part of this change. And if you do that, then you start to sort of start to build the support towards it. Uh, One of the other lessons that, that I learned working in an environment like that is as leaders, we often tend to focus a lot on resistance. And it's important, right? but it's important to also not ignore the advocates and double down on fence sitters, because that will give you the momentum. And at some point, there's diminishing return if you over-obsess about resistance. But if you use sort of the momentum of the rest of the organization of advocates and the fence sitter and get them on your side, yeah naturally the resistance and the tide will actually turn. Uh, so I think those are a couple of things that have worked for me. What do you yeah, think, So, so I, I think the, you know, going back to part of our earlier conversation about the executive will and determination to get things done can also help with this consensus-driven uh, culture. If 
that group realizes we have a mandate from the executive team to actually execute and deliver on X, Y, and Z, um, they should shorten that time because they ha someone has to step up or they, ha they realize we have to get this done in the next 30 days. We can't spend 20 days making a decision, right? right. So they have to go forward and then you know, evaluate the risk and, or, or the risk of not doing it and then execute accordingly. I think you've got to leverage the outspoken folks, but I do think that you've got to be aware of what is possible. And, and a lot of times, and certainly when I was a, a leader in my organization, there's this candid tendency that you're very focused on box one things. You can be quite myopic on, on what you're focusing on and you've got to stick your head up a little bit above the parapet and go, well, what else is going on out there? What are other folks doing? Um, just so you're aware of what else is possible. <clears throat> because sometimes you can actually pick a bad principle or you think you're going to build something to risk mitigate something which is not actually required at all and you're going to spend two years building something wasting a lot of money that doesn't achieve any business benefit for you. Well, that, that's two years that your competition has now just stolen a march on you. So are you saying sort of step out uh, from your own organization and see what others are doing at that scale or were you talking more about sort of a, a training or a certification model for your own people? Both, or, really, okay. both. You've got to bring the outside in. Okay. You know, bring the outside in so understand what actually is going on in the ecosystem. And it's tough when you, you know, as an executive, you're juggling 85 balls in the air at any one time. Yeah. Uh, and you, you know, you get your mindset, but sometimes you can just go right. We're going to go down that, and that can be a that can be actually a bad call for you. So just having that external perspective of what else is going on, how have other people solved this challenge? What have been the pros and cons and the lessons learned? Yeah, to the point, several customers of mine have mentioned, you know, going to a conference like uh, reInvent, you know, they learned more from their peers than necessarily from any one particular session, right? right? The fact that somebody from financial services could learn something from media entertainment and vice versa, right? That they never would have been exposed to before because, ten, you know, traditionally financial services people hang out with financial services yeah. people and media entertainment and media entertainment. But when they sort of cross paths, it's like, oh, you solve the problem that way, yeah. hmm, maybe I can use it in my world as well. I had a customer last week on a round table, they talked about a concept of fail Friday. And I was like, fail Friday, what does that mean? And it's like, it's a chance to talk about your failures this week. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, just a, it was just a way to open up the, the, and, and humanize the fact that we're, like, we all make mistakes. Yeah. Uh, and you know, although we don't ever want to fail in production, that's a bad thing. The idea of failing with ideas and tests and what you're doing is just very, I thought that was pretty good. And that was just a shared lesson learned with other executives. I was like, no, that's, that's cool, fantastic. I like that. We had an award called uh, the Floppy Award. Uh, <laughs> and that was actually to celebrate the biggest mistake that somebody made. Right. It was a self-nominated award, so you can't nominate me uh, for the mistake. <laughs> but uh, it was just fantastic way for leadership to model that behavior and actually say, this is what I did. Uh, and uh, it did not work. And here are some of the lessons learned. Yep. Um, and it sort of uh, made sure and created the culture where people thought it was okay to place some bets uh, and and them not being successful uh, at them. Mm. Coming back to your, your question about the consensus culture and breaking it, I do think a lot of what we do, and we have a big responsibility to share those lessons learned. You know, we, we all speak to thousands of customers a year. Um, but one of the things I've noticed when I speak to executive committees or boards, 
yes, they're interested in my own experience. They're more interested in the global trends of their industry. Mm -hmm. Like, what are you hearing? Now, of course, we'll always respect IP, you know, judiciously, but they're really interested in what's the region and how are, how are other people in my sector thinking about this challenge? How do I stack up against them? Exactly. Almost like a bench, like an executive benchmarking, because you don't always know what else is going on because you're rightly very focused on your business. I think the fear of missing out can actually Girl, be FOMO. Yeah. put to a really good use. Yeah. Uh, because look, every company wants to get better, do better for their customers. And if you truly sort of show what good looks like outside of their org, that could be a powerful tool for you to drive the change uh, within the company. Speaking of principles, and you mentioned principles earlier, uh, what do we mean by tenants? What do we mean by principles? We use them mm -hmm. uh, at Amazon for all sort of things, how yep. we design teams, how we decide to initiate a change, uh, what direction we pick. Uh, but what are those principles? Like, why are they helpful? So obviously at Amazon, we've got the 16 leadership principles, which are core to how we hire, how we use every single day, from customer, uh, customer obsession to bias for action, to leaders are right a lot, um, through to dive deep, through to insist on the highest standards. And you know, we use those as, as a, uh, you know, a common parlance every single day. We abbreviate them in, in what we're doing. But I think you know, as a team, what are your, what are your tenets? What are you doing? Um, one of the things I, you know, was actually was very self-inflectionary for me was a design review. Like, what are the principles that we're walking into the design review with? Because if you want um, all of your team to actually make decisions which are in alignment with your judgment, if you've not declared your principles, they're not going to be able to do that. They're going to go off different avenues that you weren't expecting them to do. And putting principles in place is hard work. Um, the, the one thing Amazon's really taught me is a good principle starts with the words, we believe that. Mm -hmm. it's, it's clear to, in my mind, it provides sort of the North Star and also allows team to prioritize what are they going to optimize for yeah and in what order right so it's some of, it's about not defining the recipe but actually mm -hmm. setting the direction yeah that right. we're going to prioritize x over y um, and there is healthy tension typically between the principles and tenants uh, and that's intentional as well because it allows you to optimize the whole rather than just a part well, that, 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 that helps with that sort of uh, consensus uh, decision-making problem, right? So if you've taken the time up front to invest in really being precise and crisp about the tenants that, that apply to your uh, business unit, when you have those conflicts and you're sitting there and you want the consensus culture, any one of those people can say, well, our five tenants say this. And what we're doing here is conflicting with number two Absolutely. or number three, or the, so we actually have a reference guide that you can say, this is against or for what we're trying to do. Yep. And then that may get other people uh, switched on to making that decision to actually move faster. Perfect. So it's, it's doing that upfront work and defining the tenants for your particular organization. You know, we hold these truths to be uh, self-evident. Uh, self and we all agree that this is how we're going to operate. And if they're not right, add another one. Right. Or modify some of them. And that's a key make, thing. To make sure. So it's, it's a living, breathing thing, just like your digital transformation never ends. Your tenant should never be perfect. Yeah. One right? of the most controversial and, I think, debatable principles 
in a very good way is you build it, you support it. Mm -hmm. So have that as a principle <clears throat> and you can put it out there. That will challenge the leadership team, particularly if you're in a traditional based siloed organization in so many ways. If you keep coming back saying you build it, you support it, then suddenly that old waterfall model of I'm going to throw a project over the fence right. to support, suddenly you're challenging that. Suddenly everyone's thinking about, hold on, no, if I built this, I've, I've now got to support it. And I'm now woken up at three o'clock in the morning if yeah. it goes wrong. I've now got to make sure it's security compliant. That just as a principle, mm -hmm starts to change everything. But of course, then brings in things like segregation of duty. Yep. So the principles are really can be really powerful as long as the leadership team have bought into them. Right. You mean here's a hand over dock and uh, take it over? <laughs> that doesn't work? <laughs> uh, one of the things where I speak a lot about principles is governance framework. And in the context of data, I often get asked around, well, what sort of policies and procedures and automation tools that we should put in place? And I always take it back to, well, what are your governance principles? Mm. What are the tenets of your governance framework? So don't start at enforcement of policy level, but actually as a group and a leadership team, define what the tenets are under which you're going to govern your assets, your data, and then work into the policies and automation and all that. Yeah, I mean, it goes hand in hand with you build it, you support it. Mm -hmm. Because I'm a big believer that the team is building something actually needs to understand what their data is, what's going to be in their operational data store. They're going to know what's going into their data. Yes, you need to programmatically enforce segregation of duty and minimum privilege absolutely in there. But that, that data, they own it. And actually how they then interact with other units, whether it's through an API or a, a SOAP or a RESTful interface, is going to be really important for that interaction. But these are how principles start to dovetail together to get to that end result. Yeah. And, and to, to give you an example, uh, one of uh, the principles that I've used for governance framework around data is that our goal is to enable more access to data, not restrict it. Yeah, what a great, right. what a great principle. And when you when you say that, it suddenly now changes the frame the of mind yeah. to say, well, I shouldn't be asking people why do they need access to data, but I should be defining why shouldn't someone have access to that data. Yeah. And there may be valid reason, right? PII regulation, right. why somebody should not have access to this data. But you're just flipping that model on its head to say, well, our goal is to enable more access. Yeah, I met, I met with a customer that had 18,000 tables in their, in their data warehouse. And it was like, for a data analyst, it's hard for them to even go beyond like a, maybe a few hundred right. tables, let alone to thousands of tables. Yet the team that was owning that data and has probably done some sort of ETL, mm -hmm. you know, extract, transform, and load job to get that into the warehouse, they probably intimately know what they're moving into that warehouse. So again, you can put principles around that to enable it. Yeah, I, I, I do like what you said, Jonathan, about the principle should be, you know, fairly simple, right, to get across. And it won't be any surprise to you all that, you know, my favorite one is security is everyone's responsibility, right? It's a Why am I not surprised? That's right. It, it, it's a simple statement, but it is very, very powerful. So whether you're in the actual security team, right, there's a certain level of responsibility you have, or whether you're in a application or product team, you have a level of responsibility as well and you know everyone throughout the organization but that sets the tone for security being important across the entire organization and again supported by management and the executive team it really sets a powerful message so then again when you're having uh discussions that are uh, perhaps uh contested or conflicted hey it's everybody's so job we have to do the security right we want to do it because it's all it's all of our jobs to do that 
Yeah. I think it's also changing the frame of this is not something that is outside of your value delivery. Right. It's part of it. So it's not that you first build what you want to do and then make it secure, right? It, we it's, build, yeah, we'll build it securely. Yeah. We'll build it securely. Yeah. And if we can't do that in the time frame, we reduce the scope, right? To, right. to so that yep. we can. That's another. You know, I've seen that before. Like, I can't, I can't wrap the security in the sprint. I was like, well, reduce the scope then, yeah. so yeah. you can, because it's so much more painful to build it in afterwards. You just don't want to do that.